Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your undead camp counselor, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. I'm continuing my journey towards not being a fraud, so I hope you have Voorhees fever. This episode contains Teenage Deathland, Raptor Justice, and Broken Windows. Let's all go stay at my uncle's cabin on Crystal Lake and get debaucherous while I ramble on about horror movies. Number 1, Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter, 1984, directed by Joseph Zito. Jason's still alive and kills his way out of a hospital. A group of friends head to a house on Crystal Lake. The Jarvises, Tommy, Trish, and their mom live in a house nearby. A guy named Rob is hunting Jason. Jason kills all the friends. Rob and Trish try to stop Jason. Jason kills Rob. Jason is about to kill Trish when Tommy comes downstairs after shaving his head and putting on some makeup to look like young Jason. Tommy distracts Jason long enough for Trish to get in a good swing. Tommy then goes to town on Jason with the machete. Trish wakes up in the hospital and Tommy menacingly looks at the camera as they hug. Jason is the killer. The hilariously titled final chapter isn't even the halfway point in this series. I'll just refer to it as part four. There are some familiar faces in part four. You have Crispin Glover as the loser in the friend group who ends up hooking up with a twin. If he hadn't done that, maybe he would have lived. If you've seen part four, you probably remember his character's out-of-this-world dance moves. Turns out the song Glover was originally supposed to be dancing to was back in black. Even with the right song, the dancing is still erratic and all over the place. Crispin easily made the lovable loser Jimmy my favorite character in this one. The other familiar face is Corey Feldman as Tommy Jarvis. Now, I haven't seen all the movies yet, but I know that Tommy Jarvis is a character that's going to be popping up a bunch. Corey Feldman walking down the stairs with a shaved head that's obviously a bald cap and some dark makeup applied under his eyes is definitely one of the funniest things that has happened in the series so far. The mom fake out in part two is fantastic. The I'm young you in part four fake out is silly but entertaining. You know what else is entertaining in part four? All of the window stunts. My favorite kill in part 4 is when Jason yeets one of the twins out a second story window. It's shown in slow motion and it's glorious. I think all the bodies that go through windows are in slow motion this time around, which I appreciated. Not only does Trish also bail out a window, her golden retriever Gordon decides to skedaddle out one as well. No pet warnings here, Gordon saw the situation and instantly peaced out of there. Trish and Rob wouldn't have died to save you, Gordon. Don't feel bad about leaving them behind. 
Jason is still mortal in this installment. Sure, it's a bit of a stretch that he's still alive and kicking, but it's possible. I forgot to mention that every movie includes heavy rain throughout most of Jason's rampages. Part 4 is no exception. There are two kills right at the beginning of 4 that are a bit more gruesome than usual. Jason takes a hacksaw to a coroner's neck, then spins the guy's head all the way around and guts a poor nurse with a scalpel. It's here that I'll point out that the coroner was trying to watch a weird sexy workout tape. Turns out that tape is Robicize from 1982. Another Jason staple appears to be railroad spikes, which he normally uses to pin up bodies. Where are you getting all those railroad spikes, Jason? It would be hilarious if in one of the sequels you see a bunch of bodies pinned with the spikes. There's a zoom in on one of them. Cut to a close-up of a train track that's all screwed up since the spikes have been removed that slowly pulls back to show a big old train crash. Besides the one twin being tossed out a window, my other favorite kill in part 4 is when Jason stabs the other twin. This sounds boring, but it was shown with shadows. Neat. Friday the 13th, the final chapter, definitely feels like a high point in the series. I liked Ted White as Jason. You should definitely check this one out, even if you aren't doing a full watch. Don't take my word for it, Roger Ebert is quoted calling it an immoral and reprehensible piece of trash. Now that's an endorsement. Number 2, Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, 1985, directed by Danny Steinman. A grown-up Tommy Jarvis arrives at a psychiatric halfway house where a bunch of other teens with issues live. One of the teens named Joey keeps bothering another guy named Vic until Vic kills Joey with an axe. A paramedic seems really shaken up after seeing Joey's body. People start dying. The killer appears to be Jason. Pam, an assistant at the halfway house, Reggie, a kid that hangs around there, and Tommy are the only people still alive. Tommy throws Jason out of the top of a barn onto some spikes. Turns out it wasn't Jason. It was Rob, the paramedic from earlier, who was secretly Joey's dad. Pam goes to check on Tommy, who's in the hospital. Tommy puts on Roy's hockey mask and is about to stab Pam when credits roll. Vic and Roy are the killers. Tommy might also be a killer. Either that or Roy is the first Jason with the ability to teleport. Part 5 is confusing. Part 4 set up Tommy Jarvis as the new killer, so you'd think that Part 5 would at least try to make it look like Tommy was the one behind all the murders. That's not the case. You see enough of the killer to know that Tommy's not the culprit. Unless he was helping Roy, which doesn't seem to be the case. If Ghostface had my fiance held captive and asked me who's the killer in Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, she'd be dead. I'm assuming this is the only movie besides the original where Jason doesn't kill anybody. That's not inherently a bad thing. Everyone loves a whodunit, but throwing a whodunit in your Jason is the poster boy killer series is such a strange choice. Especially when Tommy Jarvis was set up to be the new killer. Weird. Part 5 is weird. Wait a minute, Roy killed almost everyone but Vic. Vic's the dude that killed your son. To be fair, Joey was axing to be axed to death. He wouldn't take no for an answer from anyone. Holy smokes, I know who the killer is going to be in the next movie. It's titled Jason Lives, but that's to trick people. The killer in the next movie is Joey, who was somehow still alive and saw Tommy Jarvis kill his dad. From now on, the Friday the 13th movies are going to feature a chubby, candy-loving killer. I hope.
Candy warning. Vic chops the candy bar that Joey gives him in half. That poor candy bar. Part 5 has the most disappointing climax so far. Tommy Jarvis is shown through the movie to be a fighting machine badass now. He takes down multiple foes with his amazing hand-to-hand skills. When it comes time for Tommy to take on fake Jason, the demon that's haunted him for so long, instead of opening a can of whoop-ass, Tommy freezes like a chump and takes a machete slash to the chest. Boo! What the hell? The whole movie has built up to this confrontation, and instead of Tommy promptly knocking fake Jason on his ass with a flurry of blows, Tommy just stands there like a deer in headlights. The new saying should be standing still like Tommy Jarvis in front of a machete-wielding maniac. Have you ever put a ton of love into a delicious sandwich only for it to take a tumble off a plate and explode on the ground before you could even sink your teeth into it once? That's part five. Roy being an actual killer makes a lot of sense. Jason never seemed to hate eyes all that much, but so many eyes are destroyed in part five. Roy must have had it out for peepers. Here are some Friday the 13th staples included in part 5. Rain. The killer stabbing someone from underneath a mattress. Body thrown through a window. Lots of nudity. And a new staple, a weird character doing a dance. The latter has only been in part 4 and 5, but I'm hoping it becomes a mainstay. The first goth character does an amazing pop and lock routine. How Roy could kill her after seeing those sick moves is truly despicable. I don't think the halfway house was run all that well. Maybe the owners should have kept a better eye on things. None of the kills in part 5 really stand out. Friday the 13th A New Beginning isn't. It's more of the same with a pointless switcheroo. A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors is by far the better people in a psychiatric place are terrorized by a killer movie. Number 3 Friday the 13th Part 6 Jason Lives 1986 directed by Tom McLaughlin. Tommy Jarvis, who is not the new Jason, goes to Jason's grave to make sure he's dead. Tommy plants a metal rod in Jason's chest, which is struck by lightning. Jason is resurrected. Tommy tries to warn the police, but they don't believe him. Jason starts killing people. With the help of the sheriff's daughter, Megan, Tommy is able to stop Jason by trapping him back in Crystal Lake. Jason is the killer. Jason's back, and for the first time, he's supernatural. Unkillable Revenant Jason is by far my favorite. I had seen a lot of people ranking Jason Lives high up on their Friday the 13th tier lists, and it obviously belongs near the top. Jason Lives is the first self-aware installment in the series. So far, it is without a doubt the most fun. If you have a friend that's never seen a Friday the 13th movie and wants to get down but wants to start with the movie where Jason is killing up a storm in a hockey mask as an almost unstoppable juggernaut, this is the movie you show them. Jason Lives. Tommy Jarvis becoming the new Jason at the end of New Beginning. (laughs) Ha, fat chance. Sorry, Charlie. Tommy still being obsessed with Jason enough to accidentally revive the masked maniac? Hell yeah. Could you pin all the death on Tommy? It is his fault Jason is back. Tommy boy couldn't leave well enough alone. Why was Jason even nicely buried in a cemetery with a headstone and all? Maybe I don't know much about unclaimed corpses of mass murderers, but I assume Jason would just be cremated. Sequels. Yeah, I know the real answer. Jason Lives is the feel-good movie I went into the series hoping to see. Jason's killing people in different situations left and right. 
a romantic picnic in the woods at night? <laughs> Come on now. Trying to have a friendly corporate retreat paintball game? Get slashed. Jason takes out three suits with one swing. He even kills the villain from Ghost that pops up in a VW bug. You're welcome, Patrick Swayze. Jason hates people that drive VW bugs. Jason slaughters a camp counselor in a cabin, resulting in blood everywhere. Walls, ceilings, floor, all covered. It's goofy. Perfectly fun and goofy. I will say a lot of counselors that are murdered this time around seem less deserving of death. But as long as you aren't an animal or child, Jason's down to kill you these days. Speaking of children, this is the first movie to actually have kids show up at camp. I never actually thought Jason was going to plant a machete in a child, but the threat was actually there this time around. First movie to have kids at camp? First movie to include no nudity. Coincidence? Probably. One of the actors, Darcy DeMoss, was offered a part in part 5, but would have to do a nude scene. She wasn't down with that. Lucky for her, the people in part 6 didn't care about having nudity in the movie. It's really not important. One more fun Darcy DeMoss fact, remember when I brought up earlier in the episode that a coroner was watching a weird workout tape called Aerobicize? Darcy was in that. Small world. To really put it in perspective how self-aware and campy Jason lives is, just look at the opening title sequence. Jason walks into a circle and slashes his machete, which makes blood show up. Sound familiar? It's a silly James Bond homage. Not only does Jason Lives lean more into comedy than the series has before, it also has some of the best camera work. Camera movement and shot composition are much more creative this time around. More comedy, better shot. Next thing you're going to tell me is it has an amazing soundtrack that's mostly Alice Cooper, for which Alice Cooper wrote a whole song about Jason. That's correct. The soundtrack for Jason Lives is incredible, is mostly made up of Alice Cooper songs, and has a written for the movie song by Mr. Cooper himself. Felony also has a song in the movie called I'm No Animal, which is amazingly catchy. At one point in the movie, Tommy Jarvis's love interest, Megan, gives him mouth-to-mouth -to, -mouth to revive him after he almost drowns. I wish Tommy said the following after coming too. You resurrected me, just like I resurrected Jason. He doesn't, and it's probably for the best, seeing as Jason totally murdered Megan's dad. Unlike the other installments, Jason Lives had to have more gore put in to secure an R rating instead of having it removed to not receive an X. Friday the 13th Part 6 Jason Lives is a feel-good meta installment in the series that anyone can enjoy. This one will definitely be added to my rotation of movies to rewatch. Kevin Williamson, the writer of Scream, says that Jason Lives was a direct inspiration, which makes a lot of sense. Number 4, The Velocipaster, 2018, directed by Brendan Steer. A priest named Doug goes to China after his parents die in a car explosion. There he receives an artifact from a dying woman who's running from ninjas. Doug is able to transform into a dinosaur after he gets his blood on it. Doug saves a woman named Carol. An all-around bad dude named Frankie Mermaid confesses to Doug that he killed his parents. Doug kills him and a bunch of other bad people. Father Stewart tries to help Doug. A flashback is shown where Father Stewart's friend Ali is shot dead and Stewart's girlfriend dies after stepping on a landmine. Back in the present, drug-dealing Christian ninjas are behind everything. Father Stewart is killed after declining to join the ninjas. 
Doug and Carol fight the ninjas. Carol is wounded. Doug kills the leader of the ninjas, and Carol recovers. Doug, ninjas, Frankie Mermaid, and the war are the killers. Doug and Carol decide to clean up the streets. They target bad people like drug dealers, pimps, and murderers. There's a montage where Doug kills a bunch of people. I'm assuming that at least one of the people killed only dealt drugs. Dealing drugs is not a crime punishable by death. It probably shouldn't even be a crime. Thanks, Ronnie Reagan. Velocipaster is in the self-aware B-movie genre. This is one of the hardest types of movies to pull off. Black Dynamite and Kung Pao are movies that work and are hilarious. Velocipaster didn't succeed. That's not to say that there weren't funny moments in VP. I thought it was humorous when instead of showing a car exploding and killing Doug's parents, all that's shown is him reacting to a shot with text that reads VFX explosion missing over it. Here is a short list of other things that worked for me in Velocipaster. Father Stewart being old in The War and covered in blood by a hilariously done landmine effect that kills his girlfriend who randomly pops up. Ninjas mourning Carol when they think one of them killed her. Doug's brother, who was revealed at the end of the movie, being shown in shots that we saw earlier in the movie where their parents only talk about how they love Doug. That's, uh, about it. Some of the stuff with the worst dinosaur costume in the history of cinema is kind of funny too, I guess. I'm sure the suit was made awful on purpose. Doug in dinosaur form is this hunchback T-Rex looking abomination. Normally in these types of bad on purpose B-movies in the horror genre, there is loads of hilarious practical gore. The only gore that really works for me is what must have been a trash can full of fake blood that was thrown on Father Stewart to show his girlfriend exploded. That is by far the best bit in the entire movie. The biggest issue with Velocipaster is the generic boring dialogue. All of it is cliche. It was easy to be sentences ahead of the characters. If you are ever attempting to make a bad on purpose B-movie, the best advice I can give you is to ramp up the absurdity to 11. But Josh, isn't a priest turning into a dinosaur and cleaning the streets and dealing with ninjas absurd? By definition, that is absurd but it somehow ends up being cliche and boring. The performances are nowhere near strong enough for this kind of movie. Gregory James played Doug and is really the only person giving Velocipaster the right amount of ham. Jesse Turritz also comes close to what's needed as Doug's brother, Sam. Now that I think about it, Fernando Pacheco de Castro brought the correct energy as Frankie Mermaid. Everyone needed to bring that intensity. Alyssa Kempinski played Carol, who's one of the main characters throughout the entire movie, and she had almost no on-screen presence. Aurelio Voltaire played an occultist named Altair, and also gave a flat performance. Daniel Steer played Father Stewart. He's incredibly awkward in the movie, which actually ended up working. I'm not sure how he's related to the writer-director Brandon Steer, but I'm glad that Dan was cast, since he gives an authentic, so-bad-it's-good performance. Velocipaster is a short movie with a runtime of 75 minutes. To make it to that runtime, a lot of scenes were drawn out. Constant repetition doesn't make something funny on its own. What's being repeated to an absurd extent has to be at least semi-humorous on its own for it to be funny when done for a comically extended amount of time. 
There's a sequence where Doug and Father Stewart talk while close-ups of their heads are superimposed over the sides of the shot and bathed in bright lights, which gave me great giallo vibes. There are various parts in the movie where split screen is used. Split screen looks like terrible garbage 99.9% of the time it's in a movie. Its use is terrible in Velocipaster. Don't ask me for good uses of split screen in films since it's so rarely used in a unique and transformative way that nothing is coming to mind at the moment. I'm assuming Wes Anderson used it correctly to fit his quirky style in the past. Velocipaster tries to be so bad it's good, but just ends up being so bad. I barely remember a movie called Wolf Cop, but I think it did the whole B-movie so bad it's good on purpose, occupation turns into a human-animal hybrid better than Velocipaster. Not by much, though. Number 5, Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood, 1988, directed by John Carl Buchler. A young girl named Tina uses telekinetic powers she didn't know she had, which results in the death of her father, whose body ends up in Crystal Lake. Years later, Tina goes to the lake and tries to resurrect her father with her powers. She ends up resurrecting Jason, who's also in the lake. A bunch of young people are at a house nearby for a surprise party weekend. Jason kills a bunch of people until Tina is able to use her telekinesis to kill him and put him back in his watery grave at the bottom of Crystal Lake. Jason and Dr. Cruz are the killers. Who's Dr. Cruz? He's this jerk bag that was allegedly trying to help Tina but really only riling her up to try and bring out her powers. Towards the end of the movie, Dr. Cruz uses Tina's mom as a human shield against Jason which directly results in her dying. If you hold someone in place so that someone else can bury a machete in them, you're just as much to blame as the machete wielder for the death in my book. I went back and forth whether or not I'd put Tina on the list. She did say she wanted her dad to die before using her telekinesis to kill him, but she was a child who never thought her dad would actually be killed by telekinesis. Laura Park Lincoln is great as telekinetic Tina. Why there is even a girl with telekinetic powers in Friday the 13th is baffling. I'm assuming some exec was like, you gotta put in one of those people that can control stuff with their minds. You know, like the X-Mans, psychos or whatever. Jason versus a psycho. Braun versus brains. Turns out Daryl Haney, the screenwriter, just thought having a girl with telekinetic powers would be neat. It's a really silly gimmick, but the final girl having telekinesis is entertaining. How else are you going to have the most ridiculous climax of all time where the final girl uses her mind to resurrect her dad that doesn't look like he's decomposed more than a week, who springs out of Crystal Lake to bear hug Jason back to their watery graves? That ending alone makes Part 7's journey worth it. Part 7 has a very similar opening to another slasher called Bloodhook. A kid goes out on a boat and their father dies on the dock. I think that's how Bloodhook started. Part 7 is the first movie in the series where the score is noticeably bad. It's also the first movie where the score wasn't mainly done by Harry Manfredini. Before starting my watch of all of these movies, I knew that Kane Hodder is a dude that played Jason multiple times. What I didn't know was the fact that he doesn't even take up the hockey mask until the seventh movie. He's solid as the masked maniac. Turns out C.J. Graham from Part 6 was set to reprise the role, but the Part 7 director insisted on Hotter, 
since he was willing to eat maggots for a movie they worked on together called Prison. When it comes to the kills, Part 7 is the worst of the series so far. There are barely any kills on camera, and what is shown isn't all that exciting, besides the sleeping bag tree slam. When the most creative gory kill in your seventh installment is Jason planting one of those cheap little plastic party horns into a character's eye socket, that's a problem. It looks like the MPAA is the main reason why the kills are so bad in Part 7, seeing as a lot of stuff had to be cut to avoid an X rating. Bunch of dumb oldsters shouldn't be in charge of movie ratings. Someone should make a fan short called Jason Kills the MPAA. Given the pattern of them meddling with the series, I'll probably bring them up again soon. Part 7 includes a lot of series staples like window destruction. It brings back nudity. One staple not present in Part 7 is rain. It's a dry one. No rain. Barely any blood thanks to the MPAA. Jason was lit on fire though, which at least at the time set the record for longest uninterrupted on-screen controlled burn in Hollywood history, according to the very reputable IMDb trivia. Friday the 13th Part 7 The New Blood isn't going down as a favorite, but it's still an enjoyable time. Oh, and the feral kid from The Road Warrior makes a cameo. Well, not really, but one of the girls looks exactly like the feral kid from The Road Warrior. You'll know the one. Number 6, Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, 1989, directed by Rob Hedden. A couple are sailing on Crystal Lake. They drop the anchor, which ends up messing with an electrical wire that shocks Jason's body and resurrects him. Jason kills them. Their boat ends up by a bigger one. Jason boards the bigger boat that a senior class is taking a trip to New York on. On the boat is Rennie, a girl who's afraid of water, her terrible uncle, her favorite English teacher, a boy she likes named Sean, her border collie Toby, and the rest of her senior class. Jason starts killing. A kid named Wayne loses his glasses. Blurred vision Wayne shoots and kills a random crew member thinking he was the killer before being taken out by Jason. Rennie, Sean, Toby, bad uncle, English teacher, and a boxer named Julius abandon ship and row a lifeboat to New York. Jason follows them to land and continues killing. Rennie and the others get in a police car. Rennie runs over Jason and crashes the car after seeing a hallucination of young Jason. English teacher doesn't exit the vehicle before it's engulfed in flames. Rennie realizes her terrible uncle pushed her into Crystal Lake as a kid, which is why she's terrified of water and keeps seeing young Jason everywhere since he allegedly grabbed her. Jason kills Julius and bad uncle. Rennie and Sean end up in the sewers with Jason in tow. The couple climbs up a ladder just in time to avoid a toxic waste flood that kills Jason after turning him into a kid again. Rennie and Sean make it out of the sewers and regroup with Toby. Jason, Wayne, and Fire are the killers. What was the big boat's name? The Lazarus. Get it? Jason was resurrected again. That ship went down, allegedly, and Jason isn't shown killing anywhere near everyone, so I guess a bunch of kids drowned. Jason takes Manhattan, aka Jason can't hack it in Manhattan. As soon as Jason makes it to Manhattan, things go downhill for him. Sure, he kills a few people, but ends up reduced to a dead kid within an hour of stepping foot on land. Not everyone's cut out for the big city life, Jason. Don't be too hard on yourself. The true name of Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, 
is Friday the 13th Part 8, Death Cruise, or Jason at Sea, or Open Water. Why? Jason doesn't spend much time in Manhattan at all. Jason is only in Manhattan for a third of the movie. Even when he finally makes it to the Big Apple, a majority of the time there is spent in locations that don't scream New York. Docks are all over the place. Sewers are all over. Well, the sewers did seem very New York now that I think about it. Jason wasn't even the only threat the lifeboaters had to deal with in New York. As soon as they arrived, they were mugged at gunpoint, and Rennie was kidnapped and drugged. More bad stuff would have happened to her if Jason didn't follow her and kill the criminals. It was definitely a bit racist that the criminals were the only Latinos in the movie. There has been better representation in the past, at least, with Vera Sanchez in Part 3, who's the first character to be killed by hockey mask-wearing Jason. The series has been doing a bit better with representation as it's continued. Julius is a great character. He's a nice dude that's willing to put himself on the line for others. He tries to beat Jason's ass. Julius trying to use his boxing to take down Jason is definitely a highlight. It's heroic. Julius doesn't know that Jason can't be killed by something as simple as punches. Julius wails on Jason until he can't wail no more. This leads to one of the best kills in the movie where Jason uppercuts Julius's head off, which then lands in a dumpster. I wonder if this kill was stolen from killer clowns from outer space, a reference, or just a coincidence seeing as the little clown in that movie also uppercuts someone's head off into a garbage receptacle. Julius is one of the jock characters. He's introduced with a boxing match where he beats his opponent. Later on, the opponent is in a sauna. He thinks Julius enters the sauna and is super friendly and not a sore loser at all. The jocks in part 8 don't fall into the normal douchebag jock stereotype, which is interesting. Jason was the one who actually entered the sauna, and instead of giving the loser a few pointers on how he could beat Julius next time, Jason plants an extremely hot rock that was being used to create steam in the poor guy's chest. That is by far one of the worst deaths in the series. Jason, if you are real and want to kill me, don't combine my torso with a hot rock, please. Overall, the kills are much better than the previous installment. Decent amounts of gore are shown and practical. Part 8 is the first movie to completely lean into Jason being able to teleport. Jason has had some iffy movement in the past, but he straight up teleports around the setup dance room on the ship to close in on and strangle one of the students. That's not the only instance of Jason teleporting in the movie, but it is the most blatant teleporting the masked maniac has ever done. Out of all the students, only one of them was a mean garbage person. That character was named Tamara. Tamara tried to get on the killer list by hip-checking Rennie off the side of the cruise liner. I will say that Tamara doesn't get a bad enough death, her death is off screen, and it's only implied that she was stabbed with a broken mirror shard. The other jerk character, Evil Uncle, is drowned in a barrel filled with gross toxic water and a floating dead rat on top. That was a great comeuppance kill. I've noticed that insufferable characters rarely get the kind of death they've earned in this series. That might be due to some MPAA involvement. I know a ton of gore and on-screen kills have had to be cut for that insufferable organization. I think I've recommended this before, but you should definitely check out a documentary called This Film Is Not Yet Rated to learn more about the MPAA's asshattery. 
The score this time around is noticeably bad like the last installment. There are parts that sound like they were pulled from an episode of Rugrats. There's also some very interesting decisions when it comes to climactic moments like when Rennie rams the car into the young Jason hallucination. That whole sequence is practically done via slideshow and looked awful. Jason's death is shown with a bunch of different layers superimposed and dissolved over each other which looked like a jumbled mess. Yes, Jason jumps through a window and throws someone through one. The important stuff was included. Artistic decisions aside, Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan is a fun movie with a unique location. Sure, that location wasn't actually Manhattan for the most part, but the boat is still a fantastic backdrop for Jason to get his spree on. It was planned to have Jason spend time in big New York department stores, Madison Square Garden, the Brooklyn Bridge, Broadway, and the Statue of Liberty, but budget. At least they got some times in the square. Wait a minute, how'd a boat in a lake end up in the Atlantic Ocean? Number 7, You, 2018 Onwards, developed by Greg Berlanti and Sarah Gamble. A stalker named Joe tries to make a girl named Beck fall in love with him. He succeeds, then fails, then succeeds and fails again, so the only option he has is to kill her. In season 2, a similar thing happens with Joe, who's stolen the identity of a man named Will and a girl named Love. You is a weird show. It's kind of like Dexter if Dexter didn't have a code and decided it was totally fine to murder anyone that was causing problems no matter how arbitrary for his love interest. Most of the show is shown and narrated from Joe's perspective. The first season has an episode where Beck takes over, but that was a rare exception. A welcome one that I wish happened more, but it only swapped perspective once over these two seasons. I decided to watch you after weird Jenna Ortega Twitter stands had their jimmies rustled by a tweet I made about how bad she was in the babysitter Killer Queen. A tweet that I stand by. Jenna Ortega was bad in that movie. Really bad. When I heard that she was going to be in Scream 5, I was worried. Then I watched you. She's in the second season and she does a much better job in you. I'd say almost all the acting is fantastic in you. Jenna's okay for a kid, but Penn Badgley is perfect as the awkward creep Joe. I love how he acts when Joe is in a situation he didn't plan for. Badgley does these insane frazzled facial expressions that I feel like Joe would actually do. Elizabeth Lale is great as Beck in season one. Victoria Pedretti is solid as love in season two. Acting good. Before I forget, I have to bring up that there are out-of-focus shots in you that bothered me a lot. This is a new artistic thing that happens in some Netflix shows I've seen. Well, so far, I've only seen it in you and Chilling Sabrina, but that's enough for me to label it a Netflix thing. Joe kills a bunch of people throughout the seasons, which is about as insane as it sounds. It's mind-boggling that he's able to get away with the amount of obviously shady stuff he does. Put on a hat and you're completely unrecognizable, I guess. Well, it's been some time since I watched the show and I'm already bored talking about it. Will I check out season 3? Probably. Should you watch the show yourself? Sure, why not? It's not incredibly memorable, but it's entertaining enough.
That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 83, Teenage Deathland, Raptor Justice, and Broken Windows. I'm having a lot of fun watching the Friday the 13th series. As always, if you dug the episode, leave a rating or review on iTunes. Next episode will be out on November 15th and will be chock full of more Jason. Until then, make sure to sleep on beds that people can't crawl under if you decide to go to camp.